You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. January 23rd, 1736. John Wesley, founder of our Methodist movement, was on a ship that came into a violent storm. Wesley was a young man seeking to be a missionary to the Americas. This is pre-Revolutionary War. He was going to the colony of Georgia. Savannah would kind of be his home base. But on this day, he wasn't sure he would ever make it. He was terrified. The storm was uh, throwing the ship around, absolutely terrorized. Wesley wrote these words. I'm going to read it to you so you can hear him in his own words. He said, the winds roared about us. The ship not only rocked us to and fro with the utmost violence, but shook and jarred with so unequal granting emotion that one could not but with great difficulty keep one's hold on anything, nor stand a moment without it. Every ten minutes came a shock against the stern or side of the ship, which one would think would dash the planks in pieces. So here's Wesley. A lot like this thing that Paul's experiencing, like this, this moment that could be a moment, like for most of us, we'd be terrified, wouldn't we? I mean, absolutely, we're not going to make it out of this alive. We're going to be Davy Jones's locker or something, right? If you're into old pirate movies. Like this is... This is severe, and we're we, like, where is God, and where's His goodness, and are we going to drown in the ocean and never be found? And so here's Wesley, and this is, he's trying to find something to hold on to, and everything's slippery, and everything's getting thrown around, and pieces of the boat are coming apart, and the waves are, it's just a mess, and he's afraid, and he's, he has no assurance of God's love for him. He thinks he's supposed to be a missionary, but, but he's in this moment where he's questioning the goodness of God. He's questioning the love of God. He's questioning God's purposes in his life. He thought he knew what God's purposes were, but in this moment, in this storm, in these circumstances, he's not so sure anymore. And then he hears a sound, a melody, kind of making its way through the noise of the storm. Along with Wesley on the ship was a group of Christians from Germany called Moravians. And the Moravians, Wesley (laughs) noticed, weren't losing their minds. They weren't terrified. They were singing hymns. They were worshiping. Like the boat is doing this number, and they're having a hymn sing. And here is what Wesley heard from them after the storm was over. He survived. And after the storm was over, he went to one of the Moravian leaders and asked him, about their peacefulness. I want you to hear this in Wesley's words as well. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service begins, so it's a storm, they decide to have a service. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the Moravians, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sang on. 
I asked one of them afterwards, Was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, But were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, No, our women and children are not afraid to die. In that moment, Wesley was emphasized, it was deeply apparent that he wasn't ready to meet God. He was afraid to die. He was afraid of the judgment. He was afraid that his heart wasn't right. Here he is, a mission, ordained priest, Church of England, missionary, going, going across the ocean. And in that moment, in those circumstances, he's not clear on God's purposes in his life. He's not certain that God loves him. And it's a stark reminder for us that we can find ourselves in circumstances where it's difficult to remember that God loves us. That He has not abandoned us. And as we come to Acts chapter 27 and the beginning of 28, we're invited to ask those kinds of questions like, like, where is Jesus when the boat is coming apart? Where is Jesus when it feels like He's abandoned us to our circumstances? Where is Jesus when that diagnosis comes in? Where is Jesus in the midst of tragedy? And how do we live? How do we engage? How do we perceive God's goodness in the midst of circumstances that prompt us to question His goodness. And that's precisely the question we're invited to ask in Acts 27. We're invited by Luke to look beyond the circumstances and to look for Jesus' purposes and how He's at work overcoming apparent barriers to His purposes in the lives of His people. And the thing we find, the thing that we'll, we'll see again and again and again, in each barrier, Jesus overcomes it. The thing that we see again and again and again is that Christ overcomes every barrier in order to bring about His purposes. Like everything out there, people, snakes, not that the people are snakes, but there's an actual snake in this text. Like people, snakes, storms, broken boats, ship, all the things that would appear to hinder Paul from experiencing what Jesus has for him, the Lord preserves him and deals with it, overcomes the barrier. So what's that look like in his life in a more, like let's get into the details, get into the weeds just a little bit. What does it look like? So, so here we are, and it looks like Paul's just come up against all these barriers. Initially, the barriers were like people, right? Like the Jewish council throwing false charges at him. Uh, the Roman governors just leaving him in jail for two years because they're hoping somebody will bribe him either to do away with the guy or maybe he'll bribe him to get him out. He doesn't really care who does the bribing as long as it's a good one, right? Like, like he wants some money and here's Paul. So there are people who are functioning as apparent barriers to the Apostle Paul fulfilling Jesus' purpose for his life to preach the gospel in Rome. Like, that's the point. That's the goal. Rome is the place. And it's important. Like, why Rome? 
Well, think about it this way. I once had a missionary friend tell me uh, he was going to New York to plant a church. Actually, well, you, you met Nathan Tubbs was here a couple, that day that we got stuck in Dallas. Any of you remember this? The missionary was here the next day. This is his story. Nathan Tubbs was telling me, he was saying, you know, like, I'm going to go plant a church in New York. I said, like, like let, tell me about that. What's the strategy? He said, well, like, New York influences the world. Like, everybody from around the world, there's a handful of cities all over the world that have world influence. Like, whether it's finance or politics or fashion or whatever, right? Like, world influence. And so, like, we can plant, we need to plant churches everywhere, but we need to be thinking about strategic locations, like strategic cities. People from all over the world come in, hear the gospel, and then they go back to wherever they came from with the gospel. Rome was a lot like that in the ancient world. Like, all roads lead to Rome, don't they? That's like you probably heard the saying. So Paul wants to get to Rome, and, and he sort of, you can see all the way through his missionary journeys, there's strategic places. Corinth was a place with a lot of traffic. You, like you get the gospel to Corinth, people show up there, they hear the good news, they get converted, they keep going on wherever they're going. It's a port city, there's a lot of movement, a lot of back and forth, a lot of travel. You can see he's kind of doing the strategic thing. Cities along major roads. So he's, he's kind of putting churches in places where he can maximize the effect, maximize the fruitfulness. But the, like the ultimate maximization is Rome, isn't it? Like it's the city. All roads lead to Rome. And if you turn around and go the other way, all roads go out from there, don't they? And so Paul's personal desire, and you, if you read Romans, he writes Romans long before he gets to Rome, but he talks about his desire to get there his desire to preach the gospel there, his desire to encourage the believers and get them to help him get to Spain and get on to the next level of his ministry because that's his desire, to plant churches in strategic locations. And Jesus even told Paul, like earlier in Acts, like, this is my purpose for you. You're the guy, it's going to hurt, it's going to be a lot of pain, it's going to be a lot of suffering, but you're the guy who's going to take the gospel to the most important city where it can then explode around the, around the world. So that's Jesus' purpose for Paul. And up until this point, a lot of people have tried to get in the way, but every time the Lord has overcome those barriers. Like So whether it's false accusations from the Sanhedrin, Jesus overcomes the barriers. Now we're shifting away from people being the problem, and Luke wants to say these apparently natural disasters, like, natu- like storms and snake bites. Those don't get in the way either. Jesus overcomes all that. So Paul and his crew and, and is, is along with these guys. You get a sense for what travel was like in the first century. They didn't sort of like book a ticket with connections, like we'll sail here and then we'll jump on that boat. Like they go a little ways and then they have to hang out till they can find somebody going the way they're going. And if they have room amongst the cargo and if we can agree on a good price, like it's a little hit or miss. You got to you got to work it out. And in the ancient, in the Mediterranean, the winter, like nobody sails in the winter. If you do, this happens. <laughs> like you die, largely. That's, that's kind of how it goes. And you can, you hear them talking about, well, we've got a wind, that, that's not a fit place to winter. Like we're going to park the boat for the stormy season. But they're kind of ambitious and want to get there. So they press on. And that pressing on presents a potential barrier. Because they run into this nor'easter, right? And it rips the ship apart. 
drives them in, they try to run aground, they end up being shipwrecked on this island called Malta. They've lost time, they're stranded, and then Paul gets bit by a snake. And you're thinking, like, if you're, if you're the reader, maybe, like, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a little bit. Like, would you be discouraged? I mean, this is years. This is, he's already been in prison for years in Caesarea. Now we're months delayed. This is just taking forever. Like, it's been years since Jesus said, you're going to be my guy to preach the gospel in Rome. And I wonder how many of us would just be getting, well, discouraged. Jesus, I thought you said this was like this was going to happen, like this was your calling in my life, and now I'm on this island with the natives and getting bit by snakes. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? What happened to preaching the God? What happened to planting churches? I'm like, I feel like I'm not living into my calling. I feel like my circumstances are keeping me away from your purposes in my life. But that's not what Paul does, is it? Paul understands, and you see this again and again and again. He's, like, he's telling these guys, he's like, we're going to make it, guys. Like, Jesus has a call. He's called me to go to Rome. We're going to get there. And you see his confidence he has. You see his, his certainty in the goodness of God, his certainty in the purposes of God, his certainty that Jesus has, in fact, called him, that the Lord Jesus Christ, remember this in Acts, where is Jesus? He's in heaven, but heaven isn't like, off in the, off yonder somewhere, it's mission control for the mission on earth. One in ra- the one who reigns in heaven calls the shots on earth. Jesus is in heaven, but he is deeply engaged, and he is managing, and he is governing, and he is, he is at work moving his people where he wants them to be and overcoming every barrier that would appear to counteract his purposes. So the thing Luke wants us to see here, like there's barrier after barrier after barrier, but none of those barriers can stop the purposes of Jesus. Whether it's a person or a storm or a snake. Venom can't stop the purposes of Jesus. Waves, thunder, lightning cannot stop the purposes of Jesus. He overcomes the barriers in every instance. This governance that Jesus is exercising historically has been called, which you would, we don't always do the big theology words, do we? So you owe me one. We're doing one today. All right, just get ready. It's coming. This Christian belief, this Christian teaching that God is managing all things is called the doctrine of providence. You're familiar? Like we've all heard the word providence. There's churches named providence. Well, they're named after this doctrine. And providence is the doctrine that says all things in the world are under the management and control of God in Christ through the Spirit. Everything. There's nothing that escapes His control. He's never surprised. He's never like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. What do we do? Plan B, man. There's no plan B. Jesus sovereignly and authoritatively and wisely governs his creation. He preserves it. He upholds it. 
He has a plan. He is in control. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful because we hear that kind of language sometimes, and occasionally people kind of wind up in places we don't want to be. People wind up in places where you kind of get this view that if God is in control of everything, then like it's just determined A, B, C, D, the events, they happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like your pawns in a chess game or puppets. Right? We just got to we take what's coming and we just kind of roll with it and God's governing and it's all just predetermined ahead of time, right? And so I'm reading through Acts 27 and I'm thinking this is about God's providence. It's about how he, he governs and moves his people. And I think, you know, there's problems that come with that. And, and, and I wonder, because we live in the Wesleyan world, I wonder if Wesley, John, we were talking about earlier, had anything helpful to think about this, say about this. So I went to my bookshelf and I pulled down a copy of Wesley's sermons. There's multiple volumes of Wesley's sermons. And opened up to the one with the sermon on the doctrine of providence. He had an entire sermon, a couple sermons actually, on looking at like, like how, what does it mean, mean for Jesus to be in control? Because we say that, right? Well, God's in control, and we say it just sort of off the cuff. Well, God has a plan, but, but how often do we ask, like, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> and if God's in control, are we just sort of pawned? Like, th- those are the questions, right? We've raised the questions. How do we think through that? What's it look like? Providence, doctrine of providence. Sounds real heady and ivory tower theology, but what is it? Does it matter? And I'll tell you this, Wesley thought it mattered. Wesley thought it mattered, and he said of it, if I can find my quote, if I haven't lost it. Oh, here it is. Wesley said this about the doctrine of providence. He said, there's scarce any doctrine, right? So you take all your doctrines, right? I'm tempted to do like a doctrine shout out, just let you start shouting them, but you probably just stare at me, so I'm not going to do that. Justification by faith. The doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sanctification, how God changes us and makes us holy, doctrine of the church, doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of Jesus. Like, what has he done? Who is he and what has he done? The God man who saves us. Like, we got all these doctrines. And doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching, by the way. It's the Latin word for teaching. So, like, it just means what do we teach about Jesus? And what do we teach about God, the Trinity? And what do we teach? Like, what do we teach about the church? What is our doctrine of the church. So you can like take all the doctrines and stack them up in a long list, like make a list. I'm sure you just can't wait to get home this afternoon and write a list of doctrines, right? Everybody's ready for that, right? You got no love for my doctrines today, do you? Here's what Wesley said about the doctrine of providence. Like you've got your list because you've already made it. You're not going to make it. Just pretend you have. Here's what he said about it. Scarce any doctrine on the whole list. Scarce any doctrine in the whole compass of revelation which is of deeper importance than this. And at the same time, there is scarce any that is so little regarded and perhaps so little understood. So you got this doctrine that God's in control, that He's governing, that He's managing, that He's at work, bringing His... It's not random stuff. is isn't accidental. Jesus isn't surprised. He's bringing all of His works to a purpose. And John Wesley says, 
That's one of the most important things you could ever possibly think about. And it's one of the things that people think about the least. That's a problem, isn't it? Like, that is a problem. <laughs> when was the last time you heard a sermon on providence? Doesn't happen a lot in Methodist churches. Happens more in Presbyterian churches and some Baptist churches. Not a lot in Methodist churches, so we're going to work on that today. Because when we preach through the whole Bible, we just take what comes through us, right? We're working through it. Today, Acts 27, 28, providence. So Wesley says it's crucial. It's one of the most important things. It's at the top of the list. And at the same time, most people don't understand it or think very much about it. So he's got a sermon. He's going to try to help us out. And I was struck by his approach. And I find it stunningly helpful. right? Because Wesley doesn't start with, God is this all-powerful, supreme judge being who's like lining things up and sort of playing out the pieces like some cosmic chess player moving people around on a board, right? That's not where he starts. You know where he starts? He starts with creation. He says, God, in love and in the abundance of grace, made the world. Because it's his joy <laughs> to create things and stuff and people. And he makes it. He's like, he's like doing galaxies and trees and birds and even snakes that bite people like Paul, right? And he uses them for his purposes, doesn't he? All of these beautiful, and, and maybe you're thinking, maybe like when you're on a trip or you're driving home and you're thinking, man, the world God has made is just stunningly lovely. Wesley says, if you want to understand how God governs the world, start there. God in his goodness and in his love and in the just the overflowing bounty of his pleasure made you and color and sensation, smells, beautiful sights, everything from atoms and ants to galaxies and planets. And then Wesley says, the creator knows his creation better than anybody. Right? So you want to understand, you want to, I don't may understand may not be the right word. You want to wrestle and deal with how God governs the world? Start with the creation. God is the creator. And because he's created the world, he knows it intimately. He knows everything there is to know about it. Like long before anybody even discovered atoms, God not only knew about them, he invented them. And because he created them, he knows them. And he created sparrows, right? And horses. And you. And he knows how you work. And he knows your psychology. And he's not surprised by your frailties. And he knows your potential and he knows his purposes for you. And he loves you. That's Wesley's movement. He made the world. He knows the world. He loves the world. And it's not just the vague world. He made us. He knows us. He loves us. Angels, human beings. He knows 
the heart of every creature. And Wesley said, as creator, knower, and lover of what he's made, he's concerned. He is concerned for his creation. He's not just hanging out in heaven, waiting until we sort of get done with what we're doing, and then he'll come back around and fix it. Like, I think we kind of think about the second coming that way sometimes, don't we? Like, Jesus came, he died so we could have our sins forgiven and get out of hell for free, and then he went back off to heaven, and he's just sort of hanging out doing the thing with the angels and everybody who's died and gone to heaven, and we're down here doing the work and doing our thing and, like, fighting for and trying to be kind of good people and maybe good Christians and, 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 and go on a mission trip and go to church sometimes and, like, whoo! Right? Like, that's Christianity for a lot of people. But what we find in the Bible, what we find in Acts, is Jesus reigning in heaven, deeply engaged in every aspect of the life of his church, his mission, and to bring his glory to the ends of creation. Like, that's his purpose for Paul preaching in Rome. Rome is the place where all the roads go out from. Because he wants to bring the gospel to the nation. And nothing will stand in the way. He is concerned for the world he has made. He hasn't abandoned it. He hasn't sort of like wound it up like a clock and said, all right, when it winds down, I'll come rewind, like whatever. And I wonder if it's because we don't, like, like Wesley said, like we don't think about providence. And so we just kind of go through life easily forgetting that God is deeply, intimately concerned with the minutia of our lives. Deeply. He is deeply concerned with our joy and our grief. He is deeply concerned with our sin and our obedience. He is concerned with every facet of our being. He is concerned with everything about us that we don't even know about. He's concerned. And in that concern, he's at work. He is always concerned with everything that happens with every creature, especially his children. Especially his children. Now, we've highlighted that this could get us into problems, and, and sometimes it does in some, like the way some people think about this. So you can sort of, you sort of find church traditions that sort of say like, like everything's just sort of laid out, almost like God's got this playbook and it's sort of lined up, A, B, C, and this like one, two, like it's just in order and you, like there's no option, it just boom, it happens. God governs it no matter what. And that's a little disturbing for, for, well, it's a lot disturbing for lots of reasons, isn't it? It's disturbing because all of a sudden it makes it feel like nothing I do matters. Because if there aren't any options, what meaning is there? It also makes God look absolutely evil. <laughs> because there's a lot of tragedy in the world. And if God sort of wrote the book ahead of time and included all this tragedy and it could have been avoided, 
and everything would have been fine, there's problems with that. Like if God could just save everyone and override any freedom or even save them in such a way that preserves their freedom. Irreversibly and unquestionably and with like no options. And he doesn't. That's a problem. <laughs> like ethically. It's like God saying, hey, I could save you, but I haven't chosen to. And so a lot of times discussions of providence in the history of church sort of wind up with, with God saying, like, I'm going to save this group of people and leave the rest to hell. Because God is determined and he's irreversibly and irrevocably going to one of the famous confessions of faith said that the number of the elect, the ultimately saved, is unchangeably decreed. So you got one group that God predetermines and irreversibly saves and providence is how he works that out. And then everybody else, well, too bad for you. And those of us in the Wesleyan tradition <laughs> have real worries about that. Because because it makes God look like a monster instead of a father. So Wesley says, here's how we work with this. God governs the world, but he does it in a way that doesn't counteract his earlier previous works. Now that may sound a little, you might be thinking, all right, you've just gone way too theology on this sermon, preacher, but bear with me for a moment. Think about it this way. Let's say you're building something, all right? Say you're building a house. And you start building the house. You're not, you're ho hopefully anyway, depending on your skill level, you're going to build it in such a way so that the later parts of the building don't mess up the earlier parts, right? So you're working but you're working in such a way so as not to undermine, counteract, or weaken, or sort of like mess up what you've already done. So Wesley says, God governs the world, but he governs the world in a way that doesn't counteract his work. Right? Like when we talk about God being able to do anything, it means he can do anything that doesn't contradict his character, right? There's lots of things that God can't do. He can't lie. And that's not a problem with his omnipotence. God doesn't do things that contradicts his character. He can't contradict himself. He can't be untrue because he's the definition of truth. All right, so Wesley says God works. He governs all things. He's intimately, deeply, unsurprised, but lovingly managing everything. Like, like it, nothing happens out of his control, nothing happens. But he manages it in such a way so that he's not counteracting what he's already done. And here's what he's already done. He made you in his image and gave you moral responsibility. And here's what that means. Because sometimes we say, like, why doesn't God just wipe all the evil out of the world? Like, you pro have you asked that question before? I'm all, like, 
All of us have asked that question, haven't we? Like, why? Like, when somebody's getting mugged in an alley, like, why didn't God just stop the bullet? Like, when somebody's about to have a heart attack, why didn't God just stop it? Like, when somebody's like, like Hitler, why didn't God stop Hitler? Wesley says the reason is because God wants us to be men and women of virtue. That's a word we don't use very much anymore, isn't it? Virtue. Virtues are things like courage, hope, justice, wisdom, prudence, forgiveness. He wants us to be men and women of virtue. He wants us to have character. He wants us to share his character. And here's what Wesley says. If God wants us to be men and women of virtue, to share his character, the necessary consequence of that is the possibility that we might become men and women of vice. Vice is the opposite of virtue. And he says, if that possibility isn't there, right, if God just stops the mugger and he's like frozen in time and he can't mug, like supernaturally, then you can't say that that person has any, like it, what difference is he than a tree, Wesley? That's like what he says. Like if we can't sin, if God were to stop every wicked thing we ever do and we just can't do it, then we're the moral equivalent of a tree or a Dr. Pepper. There's no meaning. There's no significance. Like if you can't disobey God, you can't obey Him. If you can't dishonor God, you can't honor Him. And so God has made us in His image. He has given us uh, a vocation to embody His character. He has, he has, he has given us agency and and responsibility so that like when we do things, when we make choices, there are consequences, real ones. And they can be good or they could be absolutely terrifying. Otherwise, but if that, without that, though, we might as well just be trees. And so Wesley says, God governs all things but not in a way that contradicts what he's already done. And he's made us into moral creatures. He said, don't eat that fruit. And when God said, don't eat that fruit, he introduced the possibility for human beings to actually honor him. And that also came with the possibility that human beings might not. But if you never get the command, you can forget the possibility of knowing God. You can forget the possibility of mature humanity. And everybody's basically like a rock. You don't make choices. You don't have responsibility. There's no meaning in the world at all. None. God governs all things. And he governs all things in such a way that doesn't contradict what he's already done. 
Wesley puts it this way when he talks about how God's at work in us to bring us to his purposes. Wesley says he commands all things, right? He commands all things. Like he commands the snake to bite Paul. He commands all things. He commands all things, both in heaven and on earth. Why? To assist man in attaining the end of his being, in working out his own salvation so far as it can be done without compulsion. Because if he compelled you to believe in him, it wouldn't really be faith. If you can't say no, it's not real. Now let me be clear, this doesn't mean we're kind of in the world running around like morally neutral people, like completely free and we can just sort of do like, like, like we're, on, we're good, we're on our own and we're just going to pick a path. We come into the world in bondage to sin. <laughs> Never forget that. Our sense of morality is wounded from the start. Our sense of what it means to embody the character of God is hindered. We are slaves to sin. But Jesus, in His grace, in His governance, in His providence, brings the gospel to us. This is why you want to be a gospel church. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel brings conviction. And the gospel brings the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel opens our hearts and enables us to walk out of our sin. Grace comes and we respond to that. Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley, one of his hymns, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, has this lovely verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening means made alive. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. It's this beautiful movement where God floods our darkness with His light. Tragically, sometimes we choose to remain in the darkness. He doesn't compel us to walk out of it. But He calls. Because if we were compelled... We couldn't be children. We couldn't be his bride. Only his slaves. Now Wesley says he does this. As much as it, like he does everything that could possibly be done short of compulsion. That's how he governs. Why? To bring us to the end of our being. That's an 18th century way of saying to bring us to his purposes. Working out our salvation. And anytime we start talking about the purposes of God, we are invited to take a big picture view of the Bible. Like real big picture. What is God's purpose for his people? And if we go all the way back to Genesis, and the first time after the fall, God talks to somebody and like, well, calls them and says, here's the vocation. Here's what I want for your people is Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Abraham was a pagan idol worshiper from Iraq, like modern day Iraq, but like that's where it was. Ancient idol worshiper pagan. God calls him and here's what the Lord says to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. You notice that recurring word? Five times. Bless. What does it mean? Like, what is God's purpose for his people? Why did he call Abraham? Because he wants to use this one guy and his family to fill the world with his gratuitous, overwhelming, stunning, lovely, extravagant, beautiful, merciful, perfect love. He's like, Abraham, you don't have a family. You can't even make your own family. But I'm going to give you a family. That's grace. And then your family is going to be my agent to bring blessing to every family. Let me see every family. I want to see hands up right here. Every family. Now here's the next thing. When Jesus showed up, the Apostle Paul said, remember that promise God made to Abraham? Blessing every family? Jesus is yes, exclamation point to that. So that everybody, even if you're not Jewish, you get incorporated into whose family? Abraham's. Which means you have a vocation. And what is it? Like seriously, what is it? I just read it five times. Bless every family of the earth. And if you get distracted, if we as a church get at all distracted from that, we have lost sight of God's purposes for us. That's when we talk about our neighbors. That's when we talk about the nations. Because God has called the family of Abraham to bring his blessing, his gospel, his love, his character, all of it to the entire world. Now, we can't do that by ourselves. It's why we're a part of a connection of churches. But that's who we are. That's why Jesus came. And everything that appears to be a hindrance to that, every barrier that shows up, whether it's a storm at sea or a disease in your life, in every moment, Christ is at work to bring about His purposes. He's not absent. He's not abandoned you. He's not walked away. He's not turned His back on you. He loves you more than you can even begin to imagine. And He is more deeply interested in every moment, every second, every nanosecond of your existence. And to Overcome the barriers to you being his agent to bring blessing to the families, all of them, of the earth. I had this conversation with some folks earlier this week. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you're a part of Abraham's family. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means it's your job to bring God's goodness to everyone. And how many of us clock in and clock out day after day after day without even beginning to think about that? Like how many days do I go through my life without even beginning to think about it's God's calling and me and my family and his people to bring his goodness to everybody? That should convict us, friends. All of us. Because we get distracted. Amen? We get distracted. Two things. Number one, we should all be encouraged. God used that storm in John Wesley's life 
to bring him to a place a few years later where his heart was strangely warmed. The terror that he experienced that wasn't a surprise to God. It was part of God's work to help Wesley realize that Jesus wants to do more in his life. And he came to the place where he received the assurance of God's love for him, and it began there. Jesus hadn't abandoned John Wesley, and he hasn't abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. He is more deeply concerned with the minute details of your life than you can imagine. Be encouraged. He loves you. And then ask yourself this question. Am I in tune with his purposes? Am I paying attention to his purposes for his people? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.